Hey, Big Biology listener, we're doing a fall fun drive, a gentle reminder that we're a nonprofit and we rely on donations to keep making the episodes you love. We'd encourage you right now to make a donation. You can make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org or set up a recurring donation at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbiology. Thanks. Teach Me Biology is a podcast hosted by sisters Rhea Corbett and Sarah Matthews. Rhea is a former teacher of 16 years, and Sarah is her younger sister and the student. On the show, Rhea teaches her sister topic by topic to provide you, the listener, with insight into tough but fun biology topics. Each episode is divided into sections, including short lecture, exam questions, Rhea's roundup of the most important information, and Sarah's takeaways. The hosts also have monthly wider reading recommendations, podcasts, books, or blogs. There are currently 81 episodes and two bonus episodes available. Learn more at teachmescience.co.uk. Hey, Marty, a question. Hit me. What part of Earth contains the least well-understood ecosystems? It sounds like a trick question, but I'm going to go with Antarctica or the Amazon. Very different places, but both are biological frontiers. Decent guesses, but wah-wah wrong. The answer is, of course, the deep sea. Ah, uh, yes. The bottom of the salty stuff that covers 70% of the Earth's surface. I should have known. Actually, you did, but no matter. Because of the challenges of working at depth, we know more about the surface of the moon than about the floor of the ocean. And the depths here are just staggering. The average depth of the seafloor is 3,700 meters. About 12,000 feet. And the bottom of the Mariana Trench is almost 11,000 meters. Which for you steadfast Imperial unit users is 35,000 feet. <laughs> and it's hard for us terrestrial primates to grasp numbers like these. You know, we could illustrate them by converting ocean depths into units of Empire State Buildings or Mount Everests. But consider instead the world record depths for human freedivers. In August this year, a 26-year-old Frenchman named Arnaud Giraud set the world record in the constant weight bifin category at... 120 meters. During which he was underwater for three and a half minutes. Holy crap! But, to put that in perspective, 120 meters is only about 1% of the way to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Not a challenge if you're listening, Arnaud. In fact, Arnaud made it only partway through the topmost layer of the ocean what we call the epipelagic zone. This zone contains about 90% of known aquatic life, and it stretches from the surface to roughly 200 meters deep. Which is the maximum depth that sunlight can penetrate. Meaning that below 200 meters, there's no more photosynthesis. So things get, well, dark. And weird. In these depths are vast ecosystems of bizarre and often undescribed forms of life interacting in crazy ways. As you said earlier, Art, the Earth's least well-understood set of ecosystems. And exploration of the deep ocean is really just beginning. Aided by new technologies, now we and our robotic proxies, or James Cameron, can go there. For example, you may have heard of the Alvin, the submersible operated by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And disclaimer, Woods Art has no relation to Woods Hole. After a recent overhaul to extend its depth range, in July this year, the Alvin took a crew to nearly 6,500 meters. That depth puts about 99% of the world's seafloor within our reach. And remote-controlled robots are going even further some to the very bottom of the Mariana Trench. These trips are revealing an unexpected wonderland of evolution and diversification at the bottom of the sea. At these depths, animals, plants, and microbes have to cope with extreme pressures and temperatures, profound darkness, 
weird chemistry, and intermittent or very low food availability. Our guest today, Dr. Helen Scales, recently published her guide to the deep ocean, titled The Brilliant Abyss. Helen started out as a traditional marine biologist, but after completing her PhD, she shifted to popular science reporting and writing. In her chat with Helen, she recounts her journey from academia to author and passes on bits of psychom wisdom. She also talks about the sheer immensity of the ocean, how we're learning more about its biology, and the species and ecosystems living on the seabed and up in the water column. Her basic message is that we still don't know much about life at depth, how many species live there, much less how they do it. She also emphasizes that deep ecosystems are very different from one place to another, each with its own species, habitats, and challenges. The deep ocean is not the dark, desolate wasteland we once thought it to be. And last tidbit, Helen unexpectedly revealed Marty's fear of submarines. To find out more, stay tuned. I'm claustrophobic Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Helen, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Big Biology. We're really excited to talk to you about your work and especially this book that you've written called The Brilliant Abyss. But let's first sort of talk about how you got to writing that book. How did you get to where you are today? What was your path to writing popular science? So I, I started out as a marine biologist, very much kind of science and, and conservation science were my focus. Um, since I was a teenager, really, I, I learned to dive and fell in love with the underwater world and set off down that road of being a kind of field scientist, a conservation biologist. I worked in various parts of the world. I've been, had some incredible adventures and been incredibly fortunate to study and, and live in various places in, in Malaysia and Madagascar and various other spots. And then kind of just by surprise, like it really took me by surprise while I was actually a grad student, I suddenly, like really quite suddenly realised that I could see the power of storytelling and of words to communicate ideas about the ocean. And I genuinely hadn't thought of this before. I was I was okay at English at high school, but not, you know, I wasn't the top of the class. I wasn't the kind of person you'd have said, she's going to be the one who writes books. Um, <laughs> like, no way. But suddenly it kind of felt like, oh, actually, this could be kind of fun. And... And I had a go and it. it was for me, it was a, it was a fortunate time for me to have this sort of revelation because as a grad student, this, there was a lot of opportunities for me to try it out. So I was writing for the student paper. I started doing like, you know, the student radio station. So I did that kind of reporting as well and had a go at it and realized I enjoyed it and I wasn't bad at it. And also kind of had this sense that if I did more of it, I could get better. So by the time I finished my PhD and actually, by the way, I quite enjoyed the writing part of the PhD, which... I gather is a bit rare um, and that sometimes that sort of... Well, I don't, That's on the tail of the distribution. <laughs> I, it, certainly here in the UK, you have to write this massive thesis, which is like more, you know, it's the size of the books I write now, if not a bit bigger, I guess. And people generally don't enjoy that part, but I really did. Um, so by the time I finished that, I was also having in mind that I'd really like to write a book that more people would read than just my examiner, um, my supervisors, um, <laughs> maybe my husband, if he's really being, being friendly. So yeah, so I came out of grad school with a very different view to what I went in with, which was actually I, I'd like to do more of this communication and see where that takes me. So it was the beginning of like a whole new journey that I had not anticipated at all. Yeah. Was there something that, that you read or, or some particular inspiration that said, oh I, oh, I can do that? It was a mixture. Like I definitely started reading and I think I had been for a few years, so since probably undergrad years reading and really loving nonfiction, um, popular science books. People like Carl Safina was a huge inspiration for me. Um, a Song for the Blue Ocean, I think I read that and I was like, oh, maybe I could do something. Yeah, that that for me, I, could I do something like that? Like that sort of feel of a book I really enjoyed. 
so there was that. And I think it kind of blended in with also just other communicators, not scientists. I remember very clearly like watching kind of reportage of, um, what was it at the time? One of the big conflicts that was happening. And anyway, I was like, oh, you know, these these war correspondents are very brave people, but they're playing this incredibly important role in telling us what's happening. So, you know, maybe I could be a, the equivalent for the ocean. <laughs> I could become like the ocean's war correspondent. Uh, but that sort of idea of like, yeah, the power of communication came to me from different different places. Yeah, yeah. So, so was it hard at all to walk away from sort of basic academic biology, or you know, do you do you look back with regret at having left that behind, or relief, or happiness? <laughs> it, it's a real mixture, actually. And I've been really lucky that I've been able to carry on with kind of a bit of one foot still in that world. Um, not only because of the work I do means I get to speak with and also visit and kind of work with, I guess, a lot of different academics, including in the field. Um, but I have managed to kind of keep a little bit of that going in my own work too, you know, and I'd also teach. So I sort of have that kind of academic side as well. But um, but I, could know, I couldn't confess to being a full-time academic by any means. So I don't know. I think, you know, we all make choices about which directions we're going to take. And there are certainly days when I think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a full-time research field biologist, as I had originally sort of envisaged, although I now know that that's not really the reality of it and that, you know, a lot of that time is spent doing other things than swimming around with fish and having a lovely time. <laughs> um, so, and also I don't know if, I don't know if I would have been that good at it either. I think, I genuinely think the way I went towards, I was drawn towards communication was because I did feel like I was quite good at it. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I would have made a brilliant academic. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know if that's where my, my real talent lies. Because I, I spend a lot of my time now, I read and consume a huge amount of academic literature. That's a lot of what I do in my books is, is figuring out what's going on. And I'm not sure I could write those papers anymore, you know, like the details involved. I quite, I realise what I do is I read them and then scoop out the story. And, and that's, that's where I, I get excited. But could I do the maths behind it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mar Marty and I are quite late coming to the, you know, public SciComm world, just, just doing this podcast. Um, and it's just been great. And, you know, we're still doing our sort of regular academic thing. But I think, I mean, I shouldn't speak for Marty, but for me, you know, this is one of the most fun things that I do. And it's just, it's just great to talk to people that are outside of my normal field and to have these conversations that are not, you know, about trying to figure out what statistical tests to do on your data and <laughs> tearing your hair out, you know, but taking a sort of bigger picture. Yeah. So Helen, we want to jump into the book, but just one more question about your, your sort of path to where you are. There's a lot of graduate students and undergraduates and things that, that listen to the show. So, I mean, it doesn't sound, you didn't tell us, I think, anything about formal training to get you from the PhD to what your job is right now. Is, is that true? Or, or sort of how did you polish those skills, develop those skills to get to the point of writing books professionally? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, maybe it's shocking or or maybe enlightening, I don't know, to, to admit that I, I do not have any formal training. <laughs> Again, I guess going back to the idea that I started this all off as a grad student and therefore um, my training was on the job, essentially, um, in various different ways and different formats. I managed to get myself in a situation where I could try things out and I could get feedback and practice. Uh, you know, and I have a lot of people to thank for letting me do that along the way. So, for instance, I mean, on the radio side of things and making podcasts and stuff, I, get, I have a huge debt of gratitude to the Naked Scientists. I was a Naked Scientist for about 10 years, I guess. Uh, and in that time went from someone who was completely terrified at the idea of a microphone in front of me, um, <laughs> let alone 
moment it being live and connected to the the world um to you know to someone who I just love doing it now and absolutely you know adore the opportunity to speak to guys like you and and all the different things I get to have in my life so um that's it and, and do you think I'm sure there is there definitely is a place for formal training least of all because you can try things out and you know meet people in the industry depending on what we're talking about whether it's a master's degree or or whatever it might be um and I'm sure there's things that I've had taken a lot longer to figure out because I've had to kind of do it myself but equally I think there's so many parts into doing what I do there is definitely not one route um and you don't no one has ever said to me show us your qualifications like where are your sort of at least your psychom qualifications I think in my case it obviously helps that I have that scientific expertise that I'm basing it all on so people see me as being a you know a voice of authority in that sense or at least someone who knows how science works so it did help for me to get to that PhD stage but equally that's not necessarily you know the thing you have to do because I mean I am a specialist as well like you know I specialize in ocean communication and there are tons of other people out there who are much broader and who cover much wider beats um so I guess my message is just if you if it's something you want to do just try it and see what you're good at and see what you like and you never know where it might lead because you know this world is full of amazing opportunities now with all the different platforms and stuff so it's it's super exciting time to be trying things out and seeing how it goes Well, let's start turning to the contents of your book. And I just have to say it was it was just mind-blowing repeatedly. Marty and I just really enjoyed reading it. Uh, it was just so fun to hear about all of the, you know, physical aspects of the ocean, all the biology that's happening. And then, you know, at the end of this conversation, we'd like to get to some of the threats that you identify to, to deep-sea ecosystems. But maybe let's just start by characterizing what what is the deep sea? So how do you define it and how much of the earth does it take up? So we're talking about anything beyond, oh, wait, first of all, can I talk in meters? Is that all right? Do I need to think in my head? Do I have to convert it to feet? <laughs> <laughs> meters, meters is fine. No, no, no me, Go meters is it. good. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. I'm never quite sure. And sometimes I get, I'm, I'm like there trying to figure it out in my mind as I go, because I'm a meters person, obviously, being British. So technically, and I mean, generally, certainly deep sea biologists all agree that the deep sea officially begins at that 200 meter mark. So you've got the top bit, which is the sunlit zone, the top 200 meters, where the sun still shines strong enough to power photosynthesis. And that's really why we've got that division. And it's not the same everywhere in the world. Like it does vary depending on the seasons, depending exactly on the water quality, that kind of thing. So it will go up and it will go down. But it's in general, we're talking 200 meters. And below that is where there's, there's so much absorption of this of the sunlight, that little bit of blue light that's carrying on down. And that's not enough to, to power the photosynthetic machinery of, of algae. So that's the kind of big change that we're talking about biologically. And then, yeah, all the way down to the bottom, um, average depth about four kilometers, maximum depth just shy of 11 kilometers in the deepest ocean trenches in the Mariana Trench and a whole bunch of others that go beyond 10,000 meters. And the thing I think that I discovered really while writing the book and thinking about all of this is just how big that space is. I mean, we can say, you know, you've got that kind of common fact about how the, the surface of the earth is covered in 70% ocean. And it's like, okay, seven tenths, that's a lot. But if you multiply that up by that massive depth, you know, it's enormous. I mean, I think it's something like a billion cubic kilometers, which is ridiculously, it's impossible to think how big that is. But it's like most of the biosphere, 95% or more of the space for life to exist is the ocean, is the deep ocean. 
And and just to say, so so the contrast is with terrestrial biomes, which are stuck on this, you know, effectively two-dimensional plane, right? Right right over the dry parts of the earth. So we're going from two dimensions in terrestrial to three dimensions, essentially, in, in the ocean. Yeah. It's so hard. I mean, I, I love that part of the book. The statistics, reading these dry statistics, sometimes it's just over and over again. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. But the magnitude of these things... It, it is mind-blowing of a sort that reading other kinds of statistics doesn't resonate the same way. So I want to say it again, 95% of the Earth's biosphere is the deep. To say that in different terms, and I'll use feet because I can't do the meters conversion, although as a professional <laughs> scientist, I'm supposed to do that, so apologies. Um, the total volume of the deep ocean, these are your words, everything below that, that threshold is 240 cubic million miles. So that means, in your words... The Amazon River spreading out a cubic miles worth of water every five and a half hours, it takes 150,000 years still to fill up the entire deep. That is insane. <laughs> it's just unbelievable what we're talking about. It, it really is. And then I think that's why, you know, we always hear that statistic about, well, not statistic, that fact about we know more about the moon than we do about the deep sea bed. And, and I'm like, sure. But there's a very good reason. For, there are very good reasons for that. One is we can't see it. You know, we, we can't look down into the deep. Uh, we can look at the moon, but we can't look into the deep very easily. Um, but equally, yeah, it's just so much bigger. And that's why we also know so little. It is that vast size. It's so there's so much still to look at because we just haven't yet. And we haven't had the technologies up until just recently to be able to do that. So no wonder we're still kind of looking down there and going, oh, my God, we never knew this was here. And why it's just genuinely, I think, just, yeah, it's where biology and where, you know, learning about life on Earth is just the forefront. It's just this golden age of learning about this planet of ours and how life exists and all these strange forms. And you, you have to look to the deep to see those things. Do you think that there are parts of the deep, Helen, like, are there deeper parts than the Mariana Trench? Could there be even deeper regions than we found before? No, I don't think How so. How well I have think, we mapped it? Yeah, I think we know that. I think we've got the kind of bare essentials on the the deepest bits um, and the general overall shape. I mean, we've got sort of what we have got in terms of the total, of a full map of the deep seabed, at least, is mostly ones that are, um, they're not sensed directly, but it's based on basically kind of sea level that you have, like geographical features like seamounts and so on, which are so massive that they pull water towards themselves and the sea seawater sort of bulges up a bit above them. And you can kind of figure out from those surface, really good satellite imagery of the sea surface, you can sort of figure out, work out what's going on down below. And I'm pretty sure that we know where all the trenches are because um, they really are a lot deeper. We're talking about the kind of, yeah, that sort of four kilometer average depth. And then in a few places at the edge of tectonic plates, you've got these just chasms going down almost three times as deep as the, the average depth. And people, if you know, and we've had the, the five deeps expedition the last couple of years with Victor Vescovo, this um, millionaire, billionaire who decided to go to the five deepest points in the world. I think they figured out quite carefully where those five places were in each of the oceans. So, yeah, I think we know. Okay. Okay. So speaking of those technologies, so how, how are we getting a view of the deep ocean? What, what are the key things that people are using now? So I... I see this as really reflecting quite closely as well on how we're exploring space. Like what we're doing on a small scale is sending human beings. And and there is a value to that. And an interesting kind of aspect is this kind of the manned human occupied, I should say, human occupied submersibles. And there's a handful of those. It's a handful of like vehicles, like 
cars, I guess, like the size of a small car, but in a sphere, sending humans down to go look, see what's down in the deep ocean. And there's, there's a few of those. But everything else is remote. We're sending, increasingly sending down remotely operated vehicles. So basically a deep diving robot. Um, they, were, they were developed for the oil and gas industry. And then scientists were like, oh, those would be useful. Let's have them. Uh, the, the remotely operated ones are generally controlled down great big cables. You send them into the ocean. There they are again, sort of the size of a car, small car. They have amazing cameras, they have manipulator arms, and it's all controlled by a skilled pilot at the surface who's flying this thing through the deep. You're watching on in real time. Sometimes these are getting broadcast over the internet, which if you want to waste a lot, not, not waste, if you want to have a wonderful time for hours on end, do watch some of these expeditions. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Wasted is definitely not the word. Um, if you want to while away glorious hours, do go and watch some of these live footage. Uh, you get to see this, this kind of exploration in real time. It's amazing. <laughs> awesome. So, so have these robots been to the very bottom, like 11 kilometers? So I think, so I was going to say that there's a second category of, of these types of technologies we have, which are untethered ones. And I think the very deepest depths, you have to send untethered machines because actually that umbilical is a bit of a hindrance. And there are, especially if you've got um, topography to navigate around, it is hard to do that when you've got the, that control. So so that is why, actually, the human-occupied submersible does become more useful because you can go down and, and to those depths. So I think that is how we've done that. But then there are other ways, too. There are landers, so you can just drop down cameras. That's one way that a lot of this incredible footage of really deep fish, for instance, is coming back. And that's basically, in a sense, just dropping down a camera with some bait attached to it into the bottom of a trench. You leave it down there for 24 hours, 48 hours. It releases and pops back up. And then you've had, like, whatever footage has been recorded of what... Kind came past at that time. And then, you know, there's all sorts of other probes and, and sensors that are put in the ocean, either fixed to seabed or floating around. And they're gathering, I guess, more information about the physical nature of the ocean, that kind of thing. So we do have like a, a real network of different types of technologies that are looking and listening and sampling the ocean throughout its full depth in all sorts of different ways. And I guess that's why I think we do have this golden age now, because we're looking in more detail and with more eyes in different ways in the full, the full length of depth of the ocean than we ever have before. So if you had a chance to go down in the Alvin or one of these submersibles, would you do it or, or have you done it? I have not yet had that invitation. Um, and I would, yes. Even though I am a bit restriction claustrophobic, I'm not <laughs> great in tight spaces. Uh, but I think I'd just get over that. I mean, I would, definitely. Just so I could say I did and, and so on. I'm sure it would be an extraordinary experience to to do that. I mean, yeah, I had to get over that even as a scuba diver. I mean, I don't know if do you guys dive. Are you scuba divers? Yeah, I've done quite a bit in dry suits, which can be very claustrophobic. Right. Yeah. And that just that sense of having that water above you. I remember when I was learning, just thinking, wow, like 30 meters, like 60 feet. Oh, that's a lot of water yeah. and kind of freaking out. But then once I was in there, forgetting <laughs> about it entirely. So I imagine once you're inside of Alvin, you don't think about the miles of water above your head and just freak out for the first hour and then get over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a long day as well. 12 hours at least. Would you go? I would never make it. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't last two minutes. I, I, I couldn't do it. No, no, that, that's just terrifying. I would, I would definitely go to the bottom of the ocean way before I would consider going into space. Oh, really? See, I would do the oh, space. Yeah, yeah I, I would do space. I don't know. Something about water. I've always had a phobia of extremely deep water. So, you know, lack of oxygen, all of the other wonderful wonders of space. That's no problem, but deep water. Okay, but well, we won't have to compete for that ticket. So. No, 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 no. <laughs> Terrestrial uh, bird biologists are not getting an Alvin anytime soon. So. <laughs> um, 
let's 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 switch gears a little bit um, and talk about what lives down there because I think the the conviction if if people do think about the deep sea and I know this is my my impression for the longest time is that we think a lot of it is this giant expansive sort of wasteland of nothingness right dissuade us of that what what kinds of things are down there what what are the estimates of of diversity at depth so I guess it's really hard at this point to to put a kind of species number on it simply because basically whenever anyone goes to look they're finding more so we, we you know that curve that just that species area curve or you know specimen discovery whatever curve you want to look at is definitely still just skyrocketing up there's there's no sign of that tailing off at all so you know even if i and i could go look and i didn't i was going to actually there is a, a great a catalog of like the, the the current deep sea species that have been identified and i'm sure that number is already way up from what i put into the book but that's just really a tiny indication of what's down there i think and i i like to think about actually more about the different types of habitats and biomes that we get down in the deep ocean. Because again, you do think about it just being this big kind of monotonous, meh, you know, abyssal plain, whatever, there's not much there kind of thing. But there is a huge variety in the, the places that organisms live and the ecosystems they create and also from place to place. So just take, for instance, like seamounts. You know, we have, we know because of these gravitational satellite-based mapping that there are, you know, a good 100,000 giant mountains in the deep ocean, like miles high, but they're so deep they don't go anywhere near the surface. And many of these create habitat for incredibly rich ecosystems built around corals and sponges that live for hundreds, some of them thousands of years. A whole bunch of other species come and live around these ecosystems. Fish, starfish, octopuses, um, whales come in to the tops of seamounts. There's a whole bunch of stuff just happening because you've got this physical structure of the seamount. And we, you know, we think there's a lot going on, for instance, just with upwelling. You've got lots of deep, slow currents coming through the deep ocean, colliding with these seamounts then rushing up to the surface, bringing um, nutrients, basically kicking the ecosystem into life. And that's why you get these incredible hotspots of, of diversity. And then if you look from seamount to seamount around the planet, you see different organisms in different places. So it's not just a case that the deep ocean is this uniform space where species live everywhere. Because I mean, admittedly, the conditions are much more uniform than they are on up at the surface. We don't have the sort of hot tropics and the cold poles necessarily. It's all quite cold everywhere and dark. And yet you do get this variation place to place. Same with hydrothermal vents, another really important, incredible habitat in the deep ocean. And you get this huge sort of biogeography going on um, around those vent sites. So it depends where you go and how you look and what kind of ecosystem you look at. Um, it will totally dictate the kind of species that you'll encounter. And I'm just talking about the seabed. We've also got the whole water column to consider too. And, and again, you've got this, these regional variations. Yeah, I was just about to ask about that. Yeah, what about the rest of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of times I think the, the open pelagic water ecologists do feel a bit hard done by it because, you know, it's the bit that the you have to get through to get to the seabed. <laughs> uh, like, for instance, I was speaking the other day to the team who had been working off of Australia a couple of years ago, and they, they put out that video that got, like, it kind of went viral a bit for a while. I think it was 2020 um, on YouTube of that giant siphonophore that was in a spiral. I don't know if you saw that one. Mm -hmm. It was just yeah. incredible. And they reckon it was the longest one anyone had ever seen. And they were like, you know, we were, we're seabed biologists. We were just coming back up when someone was like, hey, what's that? What's that thing hanging in the water? Uh, so, you know, so I guess, I guess that's also a part of why 
deep sea biology is it is exploration in a way that you just can't get anywhere else because there's nowhere else you can just wander around and bump into stuff that no one has seen before um that just doesn't really happen anywhere else it's it's that level of discovery still is going on so so i guess the short story is like wherever you look wherever you put your robots wherever you send people you will you will encounter stuff that I, you know, the general response often is, oh, my God, what the heck is that? We have no idea what that is. What is that? <laughs> We've never seen that before. <laughs> so, so you mentioned the species discovery curve still being, you know, almost vertical. So it means we're discovering new species at a very high rate. But has anybody tried to extrapolate from the data we do have to estimate how many species are in the ocean and in the, in the abyss? I mean, the classic case goes back to Fred Grassley, and I think that was in the 80s, you know, several decades ago, at least, there were studies that were doing these kind of extrapolations. And they were based on deep sea samples of muddy, sedimented environments and looking at small creatures like myofauna and looking at those kind of species accumulation curves. Um, and I believe like the the outcome of those sorts of studies were very approximate, kind of, let's just think about this and what where could it end us up? But we're looking, I think, at 10... Was that kind of the 10 million mark, I believe, or something like that? Just based on, you know, box coring, piece of sediment, get the next one, see how many new ones there were, and so on and so on. And I I believe it got to around the 10 million mark at that one, at that point. I don't know if anyone else has done any more kind of more recent updates on those sorts of projections or if that's even particularly popular at the moment in biology to do those sorts of mind experiments of how many could there be especially for the deep sea I don't I don't haven't come across that I didn't come across that so much while I was writing the book but it's it's possible that people are still kind of thinking along those lines but it is a lot I think and I think the the kind of interesting thing to think about as well in the deep ocean is it's another one of these myths that that perhaps is proving not true, but kind of difficult to shake, which is that there is sort of less, there are less boundaries in the deep ocean, therefore there is less speciation perhaps. You know, you've got this, especially in the open water, this huge body of interconnected waters. How can species divide that up between themselves? But they they definitely do. You know, and we're finding, I think there's a lot more studies happening on species that maybe morphologically looked kind of similar and was considered to be the same. So one group, I think, are the, um, these incredible amphipods that live in the deep, these crustaceans in, in deep ocean waters called hyperiods. And it turns out there's there are more species than at first glance that there are, even though they do have this very interconnected space. Um, so it's very different ways of dividing up ecological space, I think, compared to on land, because it's a lot of times about things that we maybe aren't really thinking about on land, like light levels. Um, so trying to see in the twilight zone, and there are different specialities and weird kind of eyes that are evolved to to exist in that space together. So. So I think evolution is doing different things with species in the deep ocean too, which is also another fascinating thing about that space. Yeah. I think that was one of my favorite parts of your book is the section about the innovations that we see in the deep. And I mean, I think the intuition is that eyes are going to be different. So sorry, but I'm not so excited to talk about that because of the many other cool things you listed. And unless you want to do a four or five hour podcast, we probably shouldn't hit them all. Um, it seemed to me that one of your favorites may have been the Yeti crabs because they took such a prominent role in the book. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but can you tell me about the Yeti crabs and, and the innovations that they had that gave them such a prominent place in the book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, you're, you're quite right. I basically did just pick out a whole bunch of my favorite ones and, 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 and shone a light on them. And Yetis were definitely one of those. Um, I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you my, my thoughts were, if you don't know about Yeti crabs, you need to. If you do know about them, you need to know some more about them. So here we go. Um, I mean, first up, they just look so wonderful. I mean, I have a 
Yeah, I have like a fridge magnet behind me, actually. This is no good for a podcast, but, you know, I just like, that's how much I love Yeti crabs. I actually have pictures of them, in, you know, around me, inspiring me. They just have these, the beautiful long hairy arms, hence the name. You know, the first ones were discovered near the Galapagos Islands, down on hydrothermal vents, um, these crazy extreme places in the deep ocean where life really shouldn't exist at all because it's not only super deep and dark and the pressure is incredibly high, but because we've got these essentially deep sea equivalents of, of hot springs on land, only like super extreme extreme with temperatures and hundreds of degrees and toxic chemicals and very little oxygen and just all the kinds of things that life just hates. And yet vents are covered in life, including wonderful creatures like Yeti crabs with their fuzzy arms and adorable little pincers on the end. So they just they look super cute. But actually, when you start understanding or we start learning about how they survive and how they exist on vents, it gets even more interesting. Because I think I mean, it's no understatement to say that the discovery of life on vents really did blow biology apart, because up until that point, it was thought that life really just needed, you know, the sun's energy to put pouring down, powering photosynthetic machinery and providing the organic matter and energy for, for the whole of the food web. Um, and yet here we are in cut off from sunlight in the eternal darkness of the deep ocean on hydrothermal vents. And there are ecosystems doing things by themselves. And up until that point, people hadn't really figured out that chemosynthesis, this dark alternative to photosynthesis, could be an option for supporting whole ecosystems. And so basically what's going on is in those furry arms of these yeti crabs, there are microbes that are underpinning these ecosystems. These are the critical kind of life support, the energy producers. They're not harnessing energy from the sun because there isn't any down there. They are harnessing chemical energy that's from chemicals pouring out of these vents. So methane, hydrogen sulfide, things like that. And these yeti crabs are farming these symbiotic bacteria in their arm hair and then just kind of eating them. I mean, how cool is that? They just hang around, hanging out with their symbiotic partners, figuring out how to eat their food. And that's how, I mean, all of pretty much all of life on vents is doing something like this. Some of, some of the organisms have bacteria inside of them. They have the internal symbionts. Others are eating on, kind of feeding on mats of this stuff. But the yeti crabs are, are one group that let it grow on them, basically. And since that first discovery, we now know there's a handful of different species. Another of my favourites, which is like the relative of the yeti, is the hoff crab. <laughs> yes, I love that one. <laughs> and they're so named uh, after David Hasselhoff. I mean, how great is that? <laughs> These guys with a hairy chest. I know the scientists who found them and they were on the ship down in Antarctica finding these crabs and they came up uh, with these beautiful hairy chests, uh, again covered in microbes. And they were like, "Who? Sh what should we call them after? Sean Connery? Um, how about David Hasselhoff? And if you haven't seen Baywatch, I realise this is getting to be kind of a dated reference. But, but go, <laughs> go watch. check it out. TV series. He played a lifeguard, didn't wear a shirt. <laughs> go watch it. I guess that the Yeti crab for me just sums up like how to survive, but in a kind of cool, different way on these amazing ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah. So another vent associated animal that you described that really blew my mind were these snails that have iron in their shells and the iron turns out to be doing something really interesting and unexpected. So maybe, maybe tell us about the iron snails. Absolutely. Another favorite too. So the scaly foot snail is the, is their kind of official scientific name. And they do, they have scaly feet, uh, which is unusual. I'm sure you all know um, mollusks, uh, gastropods generally don't have too much going on on their feet apart from um, just squishy muscle. But these guys have this kind of armored plate going on again uh, with iron incorporated into it. I should say, you know, that an iron-based compound isn't, hasn't been found in any exoskeleton in any animals we know of apart from this one species. And it comes back again to this extreme environment of vents 
and these chemosynthetic bacteria, which are providing um, the food, these snails have internal symbionts. So they have a pouch in their throat where they house dense colonies of these microbes. And the problem, well, the problem that's solved by this skeleton of theirs is the fact that as a side product of chemosynthesis, they produce elemental sulfur. These bacteria produce sulfur, which is toxic to snails. I don't know if you take a look at a packet of um, snail killer or slug pellets for the garden, sulfur is often a key ingredient in that. So it's really bad for snails. Um, So what they do, it turns out, is in fact the, the structure of these scales on their feet, they're full of tiny little pipes, like little tail pipes on exhaust pipes on a car, nanoscopic little tubes, and the sulfur is drawn along those those tubes to the external side of the, the scales. And there the sulfur reacts with metals in the water that are coming out of the vent with iron. They produce these iron sulfide compounds, and that's how it gets incorporated into the external side of the shell. So it's saving them from this threat that comes from within. I mean, when people first saw these snails, they thought that those scales were presumably protecting them from attack from the outside. They looked like like a suit of armour. But it turns out it's sort of the other way around. They've evolved a way to survive this very strange diet of sulphur-producing bacteria inside of them. And that's how they get by. So it's, again, this brilliant adaptation to a a really extreme environment. So, well, to sort of stick on the theme of snail, but to not stick on the the theme of snail, really. Tell us about the snail fish. This is an amazing organism. They're found at up to 26,000, sorry, feet of depth. How how do they do that? That's remarkable. Yeah, the snailfish. So these are tw- <laughs> these are trench dwellers. Say that three times over after a glass of wine. Trench dwellers. Um, they live <laughs> trench in trenches. Dweller. <laughs> I can't say it after zero glasses of wine. <laughs> trench dwellers. <laughs> um, they are really one of the, the deepest that we know amongst really the contenders for the very deepest vertebrates on the planet. And they seem to be pushing this right up to the, the limit. They have various physical adaptations to being at this incredible pressure. When we're talking about the, the pressures that are equivalent to, you know, an African elephant standing on every square inch of your body, you know, every square inch of your body, not just one of them, but multiple elephants. And so these fish, they look, they don't look like the kind of iconic deep sea fish with black skin and huge mouths with teeth and scary looking things. They are pudgy and pale and maybe some of them are slightly pink and purple with tiny little eyes that probably don't work because there's nothing to see down there really. But they have these kind of crinkly uh, lips which are sort of dimpled and we think that they're full of sensory, um, they're basically able to detect ripples and changes in pressure in the water and that's probably how they find their prey. And a very kind of gelatinous body which is a, a good tissue to have in the deep ocean when you when there's not much food around a gelatinous body is not particularly energy intensive to produce and to maintain. So like many things we see in the deep, you get this kind of movement towards the, the evolution in many different groups of very soft, squishy, jelly-based creatures. Even though you'd think that jelly, they look so delicate and kind of fragile, but actually it makes a lot of sense when you're at high pressure and there's, there's not much food around. But then there's all these adaptations that go down to the level of the cell for these creatures because it's such high pressure that, you know, we're talking about proteins getting bent out of shape and enzymes not working and cell membranes cracking apart because the the lipids just become brittle. So, you know, they have very high lipid content in their, their cell membranes to the point where I believe if you do catch one of these things, and people do often with landers, they'll send down kind of traps and occasionally catch these things, bring them up. They sort of just then melt between your fingers once you release the pressure. These animals can only exist at high pressure. They can't be brought up. They're adapted to that condition, those conditions and take them away and they just they just kind of they just slip away between your fingers. So, you know, there are all of these adaptations right down to the sort of level of molecules that allow them 
to occupy these extreme depths. Um, and we think that, yeah, they might just be kind of right up against it. So one of the things that, that fish do is they put more of this compound called TMA, trimethylamine oxide, in their tissues to counterbalance um, not just pressure, but also the, the osmotic problems of being in a very salty place. And there's possibly a point where they really can't put any more in their tissues because then it really becomes, yeah, they will become more concentrated than the seawater and then they will... Sort of toxic to them. Yeah, it becomes toxic, exactly. And the kind of theoretical depth maximum, I think, is about 8,000 metres for fish. And that's roughly about where these snailfish go down to. This could be that they go deeper, we don't know, but it might be that they just get to that, that bottom depth and then that's it. They can't really go much further without a real kind of expensive overhaul of their biology. So they're incredible. They're incredible creatures. Well, I think it might be a good time to to switch gears a bit and talk about some of the threats that you identify to deep sea ecosystems. You just do a great job of laying out, you know, the biology and then some of the sort of current anthropogenic threats to those deep sea ecosystems. And I don't think we have time to talk about all of them, uh, but maybe let's just pick a few that really caught our eye. Maybe let's start with um, exploitation of, of deep sea fish. And maybe we can just start with the orange ruffy. And can you tell us the story of the orange ruffy and the consequences of, of fishing on its populations? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Is, is orange ruffy a species that you ever, either of you two have seen on sale or, I mean, have you ever eaten it? Because in, in the UK and in Europe, it doesn't seem to be that I think I've common. eaten it. It's, I've eaten yeah. it. It's, it's quite common in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think most of the time you can go to the supermarkets around here and find it. It's not as common as today as it used but to I'm be. But I'm never going to eat it again. Yeah. Well, I know. I know better now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I didn't say, I, I, don't, I don't mean to make you feel bad. It's just, um, I kind of, it's interesting to know, you know, who's, who knows of it, right? Because I think it, it isn't a species that's necessarily marketed everywhere in Europe. So Europeans are often fairly unaware that this is still being eaten. And it's a species, I mean, it was originally, you know, it lives down in the deep ocean, they congregate around deep sea mounts. And so the fisheries really opened up in the 80s when there was the technologies to locate these huge mountains using sonar. And the fishing vessels had that capacity to go and find these places and refine them. And also the kind of power to send down colossal nets to trawl these things. Um, we're talking about you kind of single shots bringing up 50 tonnes potentially of fish in one go. And, you know, really just extraordinary levels of industrial fishing on a kind of scale that's just... It's just nuts to think that that many fish are there and that can be kind of quickly scooped out of the ocean. So an orange, it's called the orange ruffy. The, the family of fish um, have rough scales. That's where, where the common name comes from. They're very deeply pigmented. They're quite red when they're alive, but when they die, they kind of fade to this orange colour, so they're called orange ruffy. They were renamed. They're actually um, slimehead was the original sort of common name for them, but... Once people started catching them and, and figuring out maybe people want to eat them. I love that. Slimehead will not sell. Yeah, no. So, so it got rebranded, you know, and actually they found that for deep sea, not a lot of deep sea fish are necessarily the kind of thing people do want to eat. These ones are actually quite unoffensive. They're not too oily. They don't smell too bad. So they were kind of suitable for the market in that sense. So people were like, we're catching them. Let's try and get people to eat them. But the thing was with it that it was a case of like a fishery that was really carrying away with itself before anyone really comprehended what was going on, how much impact this was having, and and how could it be regulated? So both on the biology side of things and on the regulation, it was just kind of freewheeling off. It was beginning in Australia or New Zealand. Fisheries were going out and they were fishing out at one seamount till they basically stopped catching whole nets full of these things, and then they just move on to the next one. And it was more like mining than fishing in that sense. It was just like mount to mount to mount. 
And as that was happening, people were only then just kind of going, ooh, do we know anything about these fish, really, about how they live and, and where they live? And initially, when fisheries started to exploit a new seamount, not only would fish come up, but huge corals would come up too in their nets, like giant trees you know, of living corals that are hundreds, thousands of years old were also coming up in these trawl nets. So it slowly dawned that not only was there a huge ecological habitat damage happening with these physical nets being dragged across the seabed on these seamounts, but also the animals that were being caught, these orange ruffy, were just the kind of species that it's going to be very difficult to sustainably fish because they live for at least 100 years. Now there are estimates up to sort of 200, 250 years apiece that they take decades to mature and to begin reproducing. So no wonder, I mean, they all, they aggregate on these mount, sea mounts to spawn. That's how they come together. So they're really easy to fish. And yet once they've gone, you know, the populations were very quickly being wiped out and you had this kind of serial depletion happening. So it really was a lesson in like the fisheries were running ahead of understanding of what's down there, you know. And if you were going to pick a species to, to do this with, you know, let's try and use the oceans sustainably if we want to feed people. Orange ruffy really isn't the kind of species that's going to work out for, you know. It's, it is technically possible. You could figure out and people are trying to figure out how to set a quota that would mean you wouldn't be depleting the population. But it's going to be so low compared to other much faster growing species. It just doesn't seem like the kind of smart move to make especially given the ecosystem impacts, too, of these amazing old corals, you know. So, so is there much less fishing for orange ruffy now than there has been historically? Or is it still going full bore? I mean, yes, but sadly, a lot of it, the declines were just because they were running out. Um, you know, people stopped fishing them because they weren't catching them anymore. Um, there is more regulation now, though. So it's not entirely, you know, it's not that they have gone and they're not actually going to go extinct. But what we're seeing is very slow recovery times and a real absence of young ruffy coming into these populations. Some of these seamounts that have been stripped bare decades ago, you know, there's still no young fish showing up. So it's a big question as to if they will and, and when they're going to come back and re, you know, repopulate these areas, if that's going to happen at all. You mentioned a lanternfish as a possible alternative. Where things stand with the lanternfish and, and why is that? promising. So that would be potentially a whole new type of fishing, which ha isn't happening yet. And this is midwater fish in the twilight zone. So from that 200 meter mark down to about a thousand meters, this kind of dim twilight area of the deep ocean, you get these enormous, huge abundance of small sardine sized little fish, little bioluminescent glowing fish. They go on these incredible migrations to the surface every night to feed and then they come back down into the twilight zone and they form this these dense populations. Originally they were discovered because um, Navy sonar were kind of focusing on the deep ocean trying to figure out if there were submarines and so on down there and they, they, they thought they saw the seabed moving up and down during the day and um, coming up at night and going back down during the day. Turns out that was just fish. They, because they have swim bladders, so they were, the, the sonar beams were bouncing off of them. They're so dense, you know, they were impersonating the seabed. So there are huge, there's a huge biomass of these species, a bunch of different ones. You know, there's a couple of hundred species of lanternfish. There's also bristlemouths that do a similar kind of thing. Mictophids is the kind of general name for, well, for the family, I guess. You know, and there have been various estimates of the global abundance of these things. And there's no doubt that they are super abundant. You know, we're talking a, you know, a gigaton, maybe 20 gigatons of fish in this twilight zone. And that in itself is incredibly exciting, but also, you know, they're clearly playing a critical role in, in the ecosystems. A bunch of other wildlife and species that feed on them. They're also doing an incredibly important job of pulling carbon down into the deep ocean. 
because they're feeding at the surface at night, coming back down, and that's where they poop and where they die and where other things eat them. And that carbon from the surface is really getting down into deeper parts of the ocean where it's going to stay for much longer. So the carbon cycle and the carbon pump down into the deep, these guys are critical in that. But of course, there are also people who find out about this incredible abundance of animal life, this biomass, and think, hey, can we exploit that? Can we do something with it? You can't eat it directly. These things are very bony and oily. They're not really palatable. So, okay, great. We turn them into fish oils and fish meals and we feed other fish with them and we create health pills and that kind of thing. And that's how we can make money out of it. And it's at that kind of stage right now where it's like, I think it's industries thinking, is this the next big thing? You know, is this the next big way we're going to monetize the ocean? And I do see it as monetizing as opposed to it. I don't think we can... We can't expect lanternfish to feed the world, I don't think. This is not a solution to world hunger, to, to food security. It's really a case of another industrial exploitation, another industrial idea of, of how to use the ocean. There aren't any, uh, as far as I'm aware yet, any commercial scale, deep uh, open twilight zone trawls, trawl fisheries happening. But there are some experimental ones and people are looking into this. Um, you know, it reminds me of krill in Antarctica. You know, this idea of the huge abundance of Antarctic krill and Boats going down there and getting the technologies to suck them out of the ocean. Is that a good idea? I don't think so. I, I think these are ecosystems that very much need to be left alone as much as possible. And yet, of course, there's always those thoughts about what more can be done to monetize and to to commercialize the ocean. And the Twilight Zone is one place where that, that could potentially happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, Helen, one more conservation issue. It seems you, you read a lot of in the book about the deep sea being used as a source of materials, uh, a lot of mining happening and probably the risk of much, much more happening in the future. So what's what are the main targets right now? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? What are the biggest concerns? Yeah, so deep sea mining for metals, for, for minerals, is something that people have dreamt about for decades. I remember when I was in high school being taught about manganese nodules, black rocks that look like lumps of coal, shiny coal, that are scattered around these abyssal plains. And I, and I remember back at that point, being told about these and thinking, well, well, yeah, I think the idea at that point as well, a few decades ago, I shan't say how many, but a few, um, when I was at high school, the idea that really it was just mud and rocks. That happened to be full of metals, not just manganese, but a whole bunch of other things, cobalt and rare earth metals and various other things. And maybe one day people are going to figure out we should go get them. We've known about these for much longer. I mean, they were first sort of found by the Challenger expedition, which is just about to celebrate its 150th anniversary from when those guys set off on this crazy round-the-world two-year voyage of oceanographic exploration and really sort of set that bar for understanding the ocean. They came back, you know, they found these things and it was seen as a curiosity. They were sort of put on display as being as curious and wonderful as a moon rock, you know, these things that grow at the bottom of the ocean. And they do, they grow from the water. They take millions of years to form. It's one of the slowest geological processes that's been measured. You know, and people have really been thinking about potentially mining them for decades. There's a couple of other places as well where there are these rich, metal-rich deposits which are currently interesting potential mining companies, uh, one of them being hydrothermal vents, these black smoker chimneys, also full of metals, and seamounts. Yeah, there are crusts, metal-rich rocks on the tops of seamounts, forming a similar sort of process as these nodules and are, are full of various different elements. And at this point, there is no commercial scale exploitation of these deep sea deposits, but we're very close to it becoming a reality. There was kind of this initial wave of interest in the 60s and 70s of people kind of thinking we could go do this and scoop up these rocks and had various ideas of how that would happen. But the technologies really weren't there. The costs were too high. 
now that's it is different. They, you know, we 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 have much more advanced tech to do this. And there's also potentially, well, there are arguments being made that there's more need to go and get these metals. The biggest one being that we need them for a green transition. Um, so, so a lot of the talk is about, oh, well, you know, electric car batteries need cobalt and various other things. We'll get them from the deep sea because the land-based sources are either running out or they're highly problematic. And, and certainly there are problematic sources of things like cobalt. And so we're looking to the deep sea to say, all right, OK, so we're going to get these stuff from down in the deep. But the thing is, well, there are a lot of questions about whether we can and should be mining the deep seabed. And I wanted to look at it in more detail. And it's super complex. I wrote two long chapters about it in the book. Um, but I think the kind of high level stuff is, is well, the assumption of would it be these particular metals that we need uh, for the tech that's going to you know, get us off of fossil fuels and, and, and reducing our carbon output as a globally, then the tech is changing, you know, that we already have cars being made with cobalt free batteries. So it's a very simplistic argument to say that we need that cobalt from the deep sea to make electric car batteries and therefore stop using gas and petrol. You know, we could easily move away to a different type of a vehicle. We could look at different solutions. And I guess that, I mean, the one thing I want to absolutely underline is things have changed a lot in my lifetime since those early high school days of them going, oh, it's mud and rocks. We know so much more about these deep sea ecosystems and what lives down there. It is not an empty void. It's, it's, I mean, it's easy to see that seamounts and hydrothermal vents are full of life. We just have to go look at it. And you can see that it's obviously the case. But even for these abyssal plains, which might at first not look quite so exciting, you know, they're not brimming with life in that sense. But there's still a huge amount of unique endemic species that live in these systems, in this rock and sediments around them. There's a lot of new species being found and a lot of them rely on these rocks. So even if you could, even if you could very carefully take those rocks away, you're removing that basis of the habitat um, and that's not coming back anytime soon. So the ecological impacts are, are a big question when we're looking at this possibility of mining the deep seabed. A really practical question for that, Helen. I mean, you touch on it a little bit in the book. Maybe it's, it's good to, to bring it up here. Who owns the depth? I mean, this is not, I have a hard time figuring out how this is going to happen, how it's going to be regulated, because presumably so much of the deep, deep ocean, is there ownership? Is that clear? No, and it's it's actually the whole story of how we got to this point of potentially mining the deep seabed um, is wrapped up in this early dreams of doing it. And even how we think of the, the, the jurisdictions of the ocean now was kind of a consequence of people early on in the 60s going, hey, could we do this? Could we mine the deep sea? In which case, who gets which bit? And it was very much the, and it still is very much the rich industrialized nations who have the capacity to do this kind of thing anyway. And they were just kind of, you know, reaching further and further from land and saying, this bit's mine, this bit's mine. So, you know, the United Nations got together and they were like, okay, look, we need to figure this out. Who owns the sea and who owns the seabed? And through a good 10 years debating this, it took an awfully long time to come to any kind of agreement. And gradually we have now got these kind of more fixed boundaries in the ocean, at least on maps, saying, you know, that, that a nation has its territorial waters and then it's got like a 200 nautical mile zone in which they have rights to exploit and do what they want, well, within reason. And then everything else beyond that is technically called the high seas, um, areas beyond national jurisdiction, ABNJ, very exciting acronym. And there's lots of interesting things happening in terms of a new potential new treaty for that part of the world as well. And the seabed, I mean, the water and the seabed weirdly are kind of disconnected, which mm, doesn't make much sense ecologically, but... The seabed is called the area. Um, technically, sounds like something out of a James Bond movie to me, the area. Um, <laughs> and that is now, I mean, the thing I found absolutely fascinating about how this whole these discussions happened was 
the area, the seabed, is technically the common heritage of humanity. It, it does belong to all of us and everyone in the future who w is going to exist. It's the same as asteroids and the moon. And trying to figure that, that they even happen, I think, is amazing that we have that in place. But it is now raising a huge issue of, OK, well, then who should benefit from mining that? And how, if we were to do that, how are we going to share that out amongst all of us? Because if we're all co-owners, we should all get a benefit. Plus also, maybe we should have a say in it too. And there is an organisation set up by the UN to supposedly you know, represent all of us when in matters of the uh, big seabed, of the seabed, the International Seabed Authority. And as of right now, there are questions, there are increasing questions about how that job is being done in terms of balancing exploitation, industrialization against, you know, the ethics of it and the ecology of it and how we should do this. There's big reports now happening in the main media and the New York Times did a huge report on this uh, over the summer, looking into some of the ethics of this. It, it gets kind of involved and, and a little bit nerdy, but I think it really does matter because we're talking about such huge areas of the planet, potentially, with huge, potentially huge impacts, with kind of good intentions at the base of it. You know, the idea of sharing and looking after our planet, we desperately need to do that. And we have a framework potentially whereby we could do that in the deep ocean and on the seabed. The question is, is that going to actually happen? Are we going to get that far with this? And the more, I just think we need to talk about it more. It is a, an issue for everyone that we should all know about. And yet it does feel, it still feels a bit kind of sidelined to me. Well, thanks so much for the fantastic conversation, Helen. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Maybe I should say we've covered a lot of water. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we always like to end by giving our guests just a chance to say anything else that they would like to say that we haven't asked you about specifically or covered. And I always ask the same question. And then I realized that you sit there going, oh, I have so much more I could say. Um, <laughs> it's a long book, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go read the book. No, um, I, guess, I guess I would end by saying, you know, often when I'm talking about the ocean to people, about the great wonders and, and the great threats, you know, and I do have this on a, on a daily basis of like, you know, an absolute blend of wonderment uh, and excitement about what we're learning and, and, and just the, the wonders of the deep ocean, the living uh, discoveries we're making or, or any part of the ocean and how I balance that out against knowing how many problems the oceans face. You know, and do I feel hopeful about it is often a question I get. And I'll say it depends on the day you ask me. But but yes, I do have hope. Um, I'm not necessarily hugely optimistic, necessarily. I don't know how it's going to pan out in the ocean in the future, but I am hopeful because there are more people who are getting involved and being interested in the ocean. And I'm so often asked, okay, what can I do? So I tell you about how awful this all is, overfishing and pollution and deep sea mining and everything else. So what can we do? And there is so much we can do. And I think what I really want people to think about is how you can become an ocean person wherever you live, whatever you do. And you don't have to do it all. You know, we we all have our own skills and we all have the things that we love and that we're good at. So, you know, if, if this is something that is concerning you uh, or you, you want to know more, then, you know, think about what it is that you are good at. Who do you influence? Who can you talk to? Go out and learn more yourself. Um, become that person who, like me, feels they have to tell other people about the wonderful stuff that's being discovered in the ocean and just make it more of a thing in everyone's lives. And that, I think, really does have a power. That is where my hope comes from. This is my kind of final point is my hope comes from people, more ocean people in all different ways, a diverse, wonderful group of people who are looking out for the ocean and who are the voice of the ocean. Then, yeah, then I really do have hope.
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review where you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paraden for producing the episode. Thank you as well to interns Dana De La Cruz, Daniela Garcia Almeida, Kayla McCain, and Kyle Smith, who helped produce the episode. Katie Shimeri does our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello.